Hey, Mark. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Hey, mate. Hi. Yeah, all good. All good. Nice to hear your voice. Great to see you. Hey, you. Good. Oh, should we do that again? I can't <laughs> see you. <laughs> you can do your end again. Okay. Um, everything good with you guys? All good there? We, Great. We were just talking about how we really don't want to talk about bears, so let's get that out of the way first. <laughs> how did you know what my introduction <laughs> was going bears, to be? Chris. <laughs> These are my friends Jeff Wilson and Mark Smith. That's from an interview I recorded with them earlier. The three of us met when we were shooting a documentary about bears called Great Bear Stakeout. Jeff and Mark are two of the most accomplished documentary filmmakers in the world. If you've seen BBC's Frozen Planet, Planet Earth, National Geographic Explorer, you've seen their work. And remember that dramatic footage of the snow leopard chasing its prey down a vertical cliff wall, off the cliff? That was them. They're pretty busy guys travelling the world, but I was able to get them into a studio in Bristol, England, and call them up for a chat. I wanted to talk to them about one of their most challenging wildlife shoots. Four months spent on the coldest and windiest continent on Earth, Antarctica. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. The Antarctic is at the South Pole, not to be confused with the Arctic, that's the North Pole. You might remember from history class the names of the early Antarctic explorers like Roald Amundsen, Ernest Shackleton and Robert Falcon Scott. Both Shackleton and Scott died on journeys in Antarctica. Today I'm talking with two modern-day explorers, Jeff Wilson and Mark Smith. This is a special extended version of our interview from the original podcast episode. Jeff and Mark shot the recent Disney nature film Penguins, which tells the story of an Adelie penguin named Steve. But that wasn't their first time in the Antarctic. Before that, they spent four and a half months in a tiny shack at the Adelie penguin colony, filming penguins for the BBC's Frozen Planet. When I met up with Jeff and Mark, I asked them, why penguins? Jeff jumped in first to explain. So so we were obviously making a series about the the polar regions and um you know we had re- really fortunate access to American Antarctica um which really means flying into McMurdo base uh, from New Zealand and what McMurdo base gives you is a, an ability to to sort of shotgun out from their base of logistics into some amazing uh, wildlife experiences and we had teams who were going off and, and filming emperor penguins and teams who were going off and filming underwater and, and Mark and I, I think probably drew the short straw because no one else wanted to do it and they sent us to the Adelie penguin colony um, <laughs> which is you know everybody it was an extraordinary I don't know if you remember Mark but people would, would look at us when we told them that we were going to this place called Cape, Cape Crozier which mm-hmm. is this fantastically famous place in polar expedition kind of literature because Scott had sent a team of scientists there to collect some eggs, some emperor penguin eggs. And uh, and, and that formed a part of a, a story called The Worst Journey in the World. So in literature, it's a very famous place. But when you arrive in McMurdo, people look at you and they go, ah, you're going to Crozier. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, like we might not and, see you again kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think it's a place that people volunteer to go. And then us, we kind of naively did. And, yeah. um, and paid the price. And, and, and you were there for, for, on that project, four months, was it, filming penguins there? 
on and off yeah we were there for like four months we had a break in the middle but yeah we were there and, and, for a long long time mark what were the what were the conditions like there how can you describe what life is like for a penguin or a filmmaker filming penguins in a place like that um, it's pretty bleak. I mean, the reason that, that, that people were laughing about Cape Crozier was that it's got a reputation for the strongest winds. And the reason the, the colonies there is because the winds are so strong, they blow all snow and ice off uh, off the ground. So that at least the penguins have bare rock to, to nest on. So it's no surprising that it's not surprising that, uh, you know, uh, it's a very windy place. And so we, yeah, we got there and it was a beautiful, I remember very well, it was a beautiful day. Uh, we got everything unpacked and um, thought, oh, this is going to be a doddle. And it was literally within 24 hours, we went out and the wind started to get up and we got into one of the biggest storm. well, definitely the biggest storm I've ever been in. Winds up to 150 miles an hour and we were stuck in this cabin for, for three, four days. And, wow. Um, You know, we're literally sitting in there thinking this, the roof is going to come off this thing, uh, we're going to die, all the equipment's going to be blown away. Um, and it was just an extraordinary experience. And o- Off to a fairly positive start then, hey? Just <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, it mind, neither of us had been to Antarctica before, you know, we were literally had been thrown in the deep end. You know, we, we'd intentionally arrived before the Adelis had come back to the continent of Antarctica and, and someone had failed to explain to us that an entire an Adelie colony is basically um, built on thousands and thousands and thousands of years of decaying dead penguins. And so I remember walking into the colony that first time mm-hmm. and all you see for as far as the eye can see is basically penguin carcasses. And I, and I can re- distinctly remember thinking, bloody hell we've got this completely wrong someone's going to come and pick us up in two months we won't have filmed a thing because all the penguins are dead (laughs) (laughs) and and uh, and how are we going to solve this one we're going to have to start animating carcasses or something (laughs) like that to kind of make ourselves look better um but it's a shocking thing because it's you know it is literally you know Mm. every the substrate of a penguin colony is just dead it's just thousands of years of mummified penguins because nothing really decays there it just gets you know it's sort of frozen into the ground wow and then the penguins arrived when at what point did you start seeing them come back so they're pretty faithful to around about october 15th um, and that's what we'd sort of taken away from our conversations with the scientists and i remember we had our big storm and there weren't many penguins around and then the storm finished after three or four days and we went back we went down and suddenly they were they were kind of just arriving weren't they Mm -hmm. i see and it's just, you see a penguin come over the horizon, there's one that turns into how how big is this colony eventually? Well, it it, I think it gets up to uh, half a million. I mean, it's the lar- now, it wasn't at the time, but it is now the largest Adelie penguin colony wow. on the planet. You know, it's it, you get 500,000 penguins plus there, uh, 250,000 breeding pairs. It's um, pretty impressive because, I mean, you, you, you're up, the colony is from sea level up this slope. And so when you're up the slope, you get a look out over the sea ice. And when you look out, the, 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 sea, the actual open sea to start with is maybe, I don't know, two miles further out from the shore. And so you're looking, looking you're scanning the horizon. Eventually, you'll see these little dots coming, you know, thousands of little dots coming towards you. Wow. And of course, amazing. when they start arriving, then, then you, I mean, the defining thing about a, an Adelie penguin colony is just, is, is just chaos. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's full of dead penguins because that's where they, you know, not many of them make it through the season, but it, it suddenly ends up being, I remember, Mark, you 
talking about it like being a war zone. It just it goes from being a very placid, kind of cold, beautiful place to this just chaotic war zone that you then have to try and make a film in. And, and war zone in terms of what? Competition between them? Or just, just the mayhem of the place? Well, everything's dying. You know, basically, you know, it's for, for the skewers, for instance, there's these birds of the skewers that, all, that, that uh, predate the, the, the chicks. And so, and by January, February, the temperature's gone up, so it's, it's above freezing. So all the frozen mud is now liquid mud. All the mummified penguins that were underfoot are now uh, floating around in this mud. The skewers are killing anything they can. So there's basically a mixture of blood and mud and uh, penguin poo all over the place. And you're wading around in the stuff. And that mixed in with the noise of the colony, the constant noise of the colony. It's most extraordinarily um, oppressive place to be after a while. It's fine, you know, for a few days it's, it's amazing, but... After a you know three months of it, I, I literally would go down. I'd be there for an hour, and I'd, say, I'd have to I have to walk away up the hill to get to, to hear myself think. Um, so really? yeah, it's, it definitely had its its moments. You know that there aren't any human noises, and so your entire. Um you know, stimuli, auditory stimuli is all coming from the natural world, which is an amazing thing. And there was a there was a sound recordist who came down as part of that project who pointed out that there that this is a kind of place where the sound hasn't changed since Scott and his team were there a hundred years ago. There's no overflights from passing jets. You know, you don't hear the sound of generators or or cars or or anything. It's just exactly the same sound as it has been for millennia. And that's an incredible thing but like mark says when it's 500,000 penguins screaming at you and then you start hearing them a couple of them say your name after a couple of you know they're going jeff 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 that's definitely true i yeah, yeah that starts to pl- play on your mind yeah it really does I, I heard exactly the same thing yeah did, what, did you kind of mark, mark? jeff yeah. I, I know that you've got this you've got this sort of obsession with with early explorers i can relate because i'm the same you know and scott and shackleton and, and mm. we've talked about them did you feel like you were channeling those people when you're in a place like this you know because it is a place that's not changed since they were there i i i think it's not much it's not as much as channeling them as just being humbled by the fact that these guys were going through something you know of course the 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 story that was written about the expedition to Cape Crozier where we were working was called The Worst Journey in the World. And and it was because they went through this enormous trial and tribulation to get there. And the, admittedly, they went in winter and we were in spring. Um, but, you know, we got there in a in a uh, an hours long uh, helicopter ride and it took them two and a half weeks of marching with sleds to get to um, the place where we were and, and in that time it was so cold their teeth were shattering they lost their tents you know all for in the name of science and so I think I mean the whole thing is completely humbling you know the, the fact that we were kind of living in the lap of luxury comparatively to what those guys were doing a hundred years ago amazing amazing well yeah you're you're very humble about it jeff i know you weren't chattering and losing teeth but <laughs> it sounds like it was quite the... so let's talk for a minute about so you're living basically in a shipping container it looked like to me up the hill from the penguins right and and what was your we'll come back to the penguin stuff in a minute because i want you to outline that for us where we are why they're there 
what this phenomena is, but back to sort of your daily routine and your eating and sleeping. And I have a list here, eating, sleeping, crapping and bathing. <laughs> what, 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 what did your routine we consist of? We only did a of? few of those things <laughs> in our time. We tried to hold off the crapping. <laughs> it's too painful to, to get outside. The toilet was interesting, actually. The toilet was uh, attached, was a, a basically a cupboard attached to the outside of the uh, effectively the, the heart and so you had to go outside and, and open this thing it was shaped like an upright coffin or a bit like a rocket sort of pointy at one end and um it, some, most weathers it was all right but then you know when there was a storm blowing it really felt like the whole thing was about to take off <laughs> um so so you really you know it kind of speeded everything up quite quite well i, don't know, I had performance anxiety when the wind was knocking <laughs> yeah. on the door yeah it was hard to get this one out mm. um anyway so, that was so, the, uh, that was the, what was the other i love list? it i love how quickly it comes around to toilets when you're talking to brits you know it's like uh, it, it, it's, it's but awesome. you know the extraordinary thing about i mean so antarctica is governed by some very um well thought out very serious rules so all of that excrement that we were generating is it has to we have to take it with us you know it's not as if you're just um doing what you would do in most parts of the world is you know going into a hole and burying it at the end you have to put everything in a bucket and carry it out with you afterwards well wow. so luckily obviously it's cold enough for it all to freeze so otherwise it could get really heinous but it, it, it is this is kind of amazing thing that you think at the end of it you're taking absolutely everything with you every ounce of urine every every little bit of poo that you've you know generated is all coming with you so it's a right the it's extreme, an extraordinary logistics the uh, extreme uh, version of leave no trace right it, well exactly mm. it's exactly that and when when you're in this 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 little shack this it, it it looked like a little shipping container for for months or weeks on end just two of you maybe three of you how how are you managing to stay sane you hinted already that it's it was a you had these moments of, of fleeting insanity but how did you stay focused and 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 together hmm, good question <laughs> we tried cooking but that didn't really i mean we you know, we, do, we we tried cooking lots of things, and they all ended up tasting fairly similar, regardless of what the ingredients were. Mm. Um, that kept us going for a little while. We I, played games with the. Uh, you remember we played games with the cereal packets. Yes, every every because all of the food is American branded food. So if you're thinking things like Aunt Jemima's, you know, syrup and uh, and I don't know what's the guy on the front of the Kellogg's Oh, Quaker Oats. I don't know what he was called. The Quaker Oats, yeah. Mr. Quaker. Yeah, Um, anyway, we used to get them down and we'd have a little they'd have little parties with them. Yeah, I think we'd talk to each other channeling it through the branded faces of American foodstuffs. Yeah. And that's that's perfectly sane. And and by this time, you guys have spent a lot of time together and you got to know each other. There's no place like that to get get to know each other uh, quicker, is Mm. there? And were there things that drove you Mm. crazy about each other? I mean, you must know each other so well at this point, you know, but were the things that were like, God, I wish Mark would stop doing that. Or whenever Jeff does that, I wish he'd close the toilet door. Uh, Knitting. I I started knitting. I wish Uh, he'd stopped knitting. I was (laughs) terrible. I I started knitting just to try and take my mind off, you know, being around you know the same person all the time so i could concentrate on that and not have to make conversation but it was really i was knitting a hat it got it was i found it really difficult to remember how many 
you know, when you're going around, when you're knitting the hat, and you've got to remember each one, so you're trying to make it smaller as you go up. And it, I just couldn't do that. So in the end, that drove me absolutely mad as well. So, so it ended stop. up being more of a net gator type thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I can see you've done the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> the good thing about Mark is that if you leave him to his own devices, he becomes so pissed off with himself that it's impossible for him to, <laughs> to get pissed off with you to the same level. So <laughs> the, the thing is to just stay quiet, let him go through his cycle, and then and let him come out the other side. <laughs> The perfect word. We're not really partner. answering the question, are we? <laughs> Do you know? I tell you what. I tell you what. I think. You know, Mark, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but we we tend to quite often split up in the colony so that we weren't in each other's presence yes. at least towards the end. You know, quite so that when we came back at the end of the day, we actually had something to talk about yeah. in terms of yeah. what we would. Yeah. What did you see? Penguin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that le- at least gave us a little bit of something to talk about when we eventually came back to the hut, you know, and were trapped in there for yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. So um, you guys were just filming the Disney nature film as well. And uh, were the circumstances similar as they were during the filming of, of Frozen Planet? Yeah, so very similar, yeah. In fact, it was, yeah, it was quite interesting because we, I, certainly for me, you know, the, one of the most petrifying things I found about doing about being there before was once you'd experienced we we're talking about that storm and that wind uh, i remember very clearly the sound of that that wind before it hit us which was like a squadron of of 747 jets in the distance it was like unmistakably uh, you know awful and you, at that stage i didn't know what it was once that storm had, you'd been through that storm you sort of always remembered that sound. So when we went back the second time, um, I was always on the lookout for, you know, if you're down in the colony, which was like three or, f- three or four miles away, if it, I was always particularly sensitive listening for that sound because if, if that storm had hit when we were down in the colony, there's no way you would have got back. Um, you'd definitely have died out there. Um, and so we were, when I was down there, I sort of felt a little bit nervous the whole time. And I do remember being down there once. We had uh, four people there with us on our team. And we'd been out on the sea ice and we came back in and I was chatting with her and she and she, and she said, you know, did you hear that? And I said, well, it said, it sounded like a, something like a, like a squadron of jets. And I was just like, oh, my God. Right, quick, everyone pack up. I just went into full panic mode and sort of yelled across, across at Jeff, like, let's get out of here. And we, we packed it as fast as we could and legged it up the hill and but caught, got caught in it. Mm. And, wow. yeah, I mean, we, we got back. We were, we were literally crawling on the ground to get back up there. I don't, you know, I think even though we'd experienced it before, we hadn't got caught out in it on the first time round. And this time round, we, we were right on the edge, weren't we? And... I, I remember getting up to the hut this time around and just being so physically exhausted. You know that kind of exhaustion you get where you, you're inadvertently making groaning noises when you're breathing. It was that level of exhaustion, and it was battling. It was battling against these winds for what the journey normally takes. What forty five minutes, doesn't yeah. it? And we probably were, it took us a couple of hours to get up that slope. Wow, you know, really? Through those winds, I do remember that, that clip story. of you, Mark. Uh, pouring your thermos of tea and the tea was just flying <laughs> yeah. horizontally across mm. the, yeah. the landscape. Well, this one, this None was all in a way... This... Cup because of the 130 mile an hour wind. It was crazy to watch. It, I mean, the the way that that cup of tea um, experiment came about was that 
one of the things that again is 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 particular to that part of Antarctica is that when you have these really high winds, there's it, it can often be a you know a high pressure day in in that there's no cloud forms around and there's very little snow on the ground. So actually, under being able to visualize wind is a very very difficult thing. There are no clearly there are no trees, there are no bushes, there's no buildings that can kind of show that they're being blown around by wind. So we, we were trying to figure out on that particular day how to communicate to people back home quite how strong the wind was because if you just pointed a camera out the window it looked like a, just a normal kind of cold sunny mm. Antarctic day but you know it, it didn't really reflect how strong that storm was. We're going to take a quick break but when we come back, Jeff Wilson and Mark Smith will talk more about Adelie penguins and their amazing resilience in one of the harshest environments in the world. these two words pop into my head, this fortitude and resilience that you guys had to have, and then the fortitude and resilience of these penguins. Let's switch a little bit to, to the penguins. It, you've described this uh, almost like a, a death zone, but it's almost a, a, a place of rebirth at the same time. It's a curious mix, isn't it? Um, can you explain why these penguins are there and when they're there and what they're doing? I mean, so Adelie penguins are, are they come back to land um, to the mainland of Antarctica to breed, and they do that over a four month period, and that's between the months of October and February. And in that really short period of time, they've got to do everything. They've got to build a nest. They've got to um, meet a mate. They've got to mate. They've got to lay eggs. They've got to rear, um, incubate those eggs get them to hatch, rear their chicks, and then get them everybody out of the colony by February, by which time the, the weather starts changing and the sea ice starts building again. So they've got a very, very, very intense period of time in which to kind of do their entire breeding life cycle. And because it's so short, that drives pretty much everything in a in an Adelie penguin's life during those months you know so that's why they're so competitive that's why um they 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 come together in huge numbers they've just got to get through this this breeding period as quickly as they possibly can and so and that and so our time there was really mirroring you know both for frozen planet and for the the latest um uh, feature that we've been doing it was mirroring that that period of time for for the Delhi's life cycle, and then the half a million of them arrive. These screaming penguins just down the hill from your your container shack. What are they doing when they first arrive there? They they sort of they, they just start to gather and, and huddle together against the elements. Well, then first of all, the <clears throat> the males arrive back first, and they arrive back to sort of claim their ter- territory, and so they're f- there for a, for a week or so beforehand, and. Um, and they're just displaying to themselves and they're building the nest and they're to do that they're collecting you know little pebbles and stones and defending their little two feet around that that nest and so mm. at that stage it's you know it's quite um it, it's all quite gentle and nice and they're displaying rather beautifully on their nest and then after a week the females come back and then, uh, then it all go, it kicks off a bit because then uh, there's a fair bit of disputes g- going on, and there's males who don't have females or who, whose females have died, um, and so they start roaming around and they try and get they're trying to get another female, and so there's a, that at that point there's a huge amount of fighting going on, and it can be incredibly violent. Um, 
I mean, they'll fight to the death. Uh, and the, so the, they, the best position in those, uh, in those colonies is sort of in the middle. So because uh, if they're in the middle, they're further away from the, the skewers who are trying to predate the, the chicks. So that ideally you'd find a female and get a nest in the middle. And so to get to that position, you know, you've got to, you you have to fight. So that's when a lot of the action happens. And, um, you know, so that's, that's kind of the point at which everything kicks off. You know, when you talk about half a million of them, and, and I've, I've read there's what, perhaps 8 million in, in total worldwide in the, in, uh, in Antarctica of this species, the Adelie penguin, you think, oh, must be a life of plenty. They're doing great, but it sounds like hell for a penguin there. <laughs> what you're describing, it sounds like it's a difficult place to make a sweet story out of. That's for sure. <laughs> this death zone and fighting and competition for mating and trying to stay alive at the end of the day. It, it's that must have been a it's tough brutal. thing to tell to tell a story yeah. in a in a sweet way when it is obviously such a tough place to be a, a bird. I think it says quite a lot about Adelis that they don't aggregate outside of their breeding season you know i mean we always look at they 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 do come together in small groups but they very intentionally don't kind of step on each other's toes like they do in the colony for for the other eight months of the year that they're not in the breeding colony so you know that that says a lot about kind of the the nature of an adelie penguin you, you, what you have at Cape Crozier is extraordinary um, uh, juxtaposition of emperor penguins because there's a small emperor penguin colony there and you really get to understand the difference between an Adelie and an, an emperor. Hmm. And we always thought that kind of the emperors are like stoner penguins, right? They just sit there and they're kind of curious and easygoing and, you know, they, they'll come up and say hello, but everyone's pretty calm. And I think it's mainly because they're fairly bird-brained, you know, they don't, they're not much is going on between the eyes on in an, an emperor penguin. But an Adelie penguin, conversely, is kind of like a super over-caffeinated penguin and these guys are on a mission and they just are you know they're bashing the hell out of each other they're bashing the hell out of us that they you know they are literally on a mission and 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 no one's going to stop them you imagine it's it's kind of like imagine standing in a a crowd of 500,000 Joe Pesci's from Goodfellas it's kind (laughs) of like that and they go completely nuts and so yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it, like we said before, it's complete chaos. Well, we saw it in, uh, on, when the emperor, uh, emperor penguin colony m- sort of morphed its way. This emperor penguin colony starts off in these ice cliffs about uh, four miles across the ice from where the uh, Adelie penguin colony is. And through the season, it sort of came out onto the sea ice and, and kept moving like this sort of amoeba across the ice. And at one point, it was quite close to the Adelie penguin colony. And... Uh, so it was directly in a line with the uh, Adelie penguins coming back from the sea to their colony. And the Adelies would come into the emperor penguin colony. And this was at the point where the chicks, they had, the emperor penguins had big fluffy chicks that were probably twice to three times the size of the Adelie penguins. And the Adelies would, get, would just come and rest in the colony. And then after a while, they'd start picking fights with the emperor penguin chicks. And they'd walk up to them and literally bounce into them and look up at them, at the emperor penguin chicks, sort of towering above them. <laughs> and the emperor penguin chicks were just like, what What are you doing? And the Adelie penguin would just not give up. It would bounce into it and literally pushing it until the emperor penguin chick turned and ran. And then the Adelie penguin would chase it. And then other Adelie penguins would join in. 
it's amazing, amazing the difference between yeah. the species. But, you know, joking aside, that's what makes the Delis such an amazing subject for filming is that they have this abundance of character that, that you can see, you know, even between individuals in the colony. You can see the ones that are slightly more... Uh, relaxed or slightly more pissed off or slightly more kind of ambitious it's it's it seems extraordinary to say that but you there are distinct differences in the ways that all of those you know 500,000 or 250,000 breeding pairs approach life which is really the definition of character and that was kind of makes them an interesting subject for film. yeah and a whole mm. host of, of characters like you say each with a different personality and when you go in yeah. you know how much how much are you arriving with a story so so f- for example in in the disney nature film it's about steve <laughs> the penguin how how much of that is is sort of how much do you arrive with a story in mind versus letting letting steve determine what that story is you know i mean i mean there must have been loads of directions that you could have gone in and and, and used but but the penguins help design the story while you're there live almost we had the fortune of obviously being there before so we kind of knew what to expect and what to get you know what was going to happen to us but i think in any filmmaking regardless of whether any wildlife filmmaking regardless of whether it's penguins or not you have to i think you have to approach all of these subjects with a slightly zen attitude of letting mother nature drive and being there to kind of um, take pictures along the way you know and i think um, anybody who who tries to overscript uh, an experience will find themselves coming unstuck. So I think the best balance really is to go with an idea of the kind of story that you want to tell, but to be totally open to you know serendipity. And that's I mean that for me is the is the reason that I do my job is allowing serendipity to take over at the important moment and just making sure that you're prepared to to capture that. I love it. And when and so when you have those moments and you get back to the get back to your shack and I know you guys you've probably got a bottle of scotch to celebrate certain moments with there, you know, what were some of those moments? What were like your high five moments of oh my god, can you believe that just happened? Anything stand out? Oh, I think the yeah, I certainly one was um I was talking about the when the males are building their 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 nests out of rocks and um the, you know, there's some very funny behaviour goes on. We were really lucky to be able to film some of that, which is, um, you know, mostly the peng- the males have to, they're building the nest and they have to walk off to find stones and they may have to walk, you know, 20, 30 metres to go and find a good collection of mm. stones to, and then walk back to the nest. And then, but some of the penguins have cleverly worked out that why bother to walk 20, 30 metres when you can just steal stones from the <laughs> nest next door and um so it's absolutely hilarious to watch that happening because the poor penguin who's walking you know 20 meters 30 meters back and forth is totally oblivious to the the penguin that just nips literally two feet away to steal the stones and you know it's such a a a great bit of behavior that we managed to get it it almost all in one with very little editing needed because the, the the birds are so close together you can you're able to film it very very easily and it basically told the story itself and i think what that was definitely one of those moments when we got back and it was just yes that is just funny in any language that's a very funny yes exactly think, that's I the mean, thing is international Mark's language being incredibly humble about this as well chris i mean i think the you know the uh the thing about that particular sequence is just the um, you know, I'm not. I'm not one for bigging up Mark, but he he did. He, <laughs> he there. It, that stone stealing is happening a lot, but to get the perfect combination of an animal coming in and out of frame, and the other one still being in the background and looking over its shoulder and coming in <laughs> and and having it all happen 
in real time without the the need for an edit is is an extraordinary you know i mean correct me if i'm wrong mark but it didn't it didn't happen on the first day did it it's kind of like mm-hmm. that's just persistence and persistence and persistence mm-hmm. to be um observing and watching and and turning over and failing time and time again to get the perfect shot but you can't better what Mark achieved in that particular sequence. That, Amazing. That I, perfect. You know, obviously we're there to capture behavior, but we, you want people to understand, you know, at least I do, I want people to understand that penguins are more than just cute and funny. And I think, you know, seeing the fighting and the stone stealing and, and you know, just some of the things that make them... Uh, that make them have uh, faults, which in 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 a bizarre way makes them more relatable. I mean, I think personally, I find animals that are put on a pedestal and and given a whole bunch of wonder completely unrelatable. It's the ones that that are slightly angry or have bad days or get pissed off that make them feel much more in connection with human life. You know, much more on a continuum with with our characters. And I think I think Adelis are perfect for that because you can see that happening. Do you think that's why people are drawn to them? That I mean, this this species that most people in their lives will never lay eyes on for real, you know, because they live in these very isolated places, but they can still relate to. What, what's that all about? What is that anthropomorphic kind of relationship there? Can you talk a bit more about that? You know, I mean, penguins are penguins are completely expressionless, which allows us to project our own emotions on them. You know, they don't have eyebrows, they don't have forward-facing eyes, and so they, they in, in that way, they don't have what we would conceive as expressions. However, they do have a sort of physical comedy to them, which allows us to project our own kind of thoughts and our own mind into their being. And, and whether that's the right thing to do or not is is not always is is not always um correct but at the same time i think they do have this range of characters that allows us to kind of embellish you know individuals right right so you guys have have, have spent so much time in these wild far away places that most people never go to and then you get to share what you've seen with the rest of the world in these incredible incredible films how how mark i'll start with you how does that how does that make you feel when you see your work on a screen where you've you've been through that real raw experience and now it's come to the world it's it's difficult sometimes um to quite see it as anyone else does i think um it's only after you you know maybe 10 years have passed that you can actually look at something and see it how everyone else sees it. Um, I think from the point of view of a cameraman, it's very difficult to see what you filmed without also remembering all the stuff which you didn't film and missed. So initially, it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's uh, you know, you're out there and you've seen so many, so much amazing stuff that for whatever reason you weren't able to, to film. Um, so, so it's a painful it, it, experience for you, Mark. It can be initially. <laughs> initially, it's a painful experience, and then over time, you forget all that stuff and you see it for what it is. But yeah, so it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, a difficult one to to answer that. Um, even if it's you know it's great, it's difficult to see to see what everyone else is saying about it. Um, hopefully, you know, after a time, you you do. And what about you, Jeff? Yeah, I kind of, I, I, I mean, I, I, when my, when Mark and I finish working together, then I go back and watch the same footage over and over and over again, probably a thousand times. And so, I think the greatest tool in any filmmaking armory is actually the editor who comes at it 
from a from a fresh perspective you know i think if mark and i were asked to to then make an adeli film after spending four months amongst them it would probably be the darkest adeli film ever made <laughs> you know and we probably would be pushing our own experiences way into the the zone of of, of affecting how the film would be mm. whereas what the editor does is you know he kind of comes at it completely fresh and and completely objectively and looks at our work and says okay well this this looks interesting and this looks fun and he works with us to kind of shape that into something which can help people understand the experience without the without the the lens that we've already we've taken away from it and i think that's the benefit of not having to wait 10 years like mark says to 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 kind of see it for what it is you know that that's what the editor does but Mm -hmm. i think i think you know the ultimately for me personally the just every time that we put a a bit of the natural world on screen um and you no know, regardless of the amount of effort that's put into it is is a complete you know privilege when you come back from these experiences after being away from home for so long that re-immersion must be quite difficult and strange hey i mean can you even have a normal conversation in a pub anymore i mean how mark what what does that feel like that that, that re-entry well all I can say is that I think a very good strategy is to have some kind of halfway house where you, when you come back that you can, uh, if you can spend a day somewhere else before you um, sort of revisit the family, then it do, it's a hell of a lot better than if you just go straight back in there. Because you're right, it's um, it's quite it is quite tough, uh, especially because you you know you've just got used to your way of life, you know, and you go back and you you really have to sort of try and slot back into the family and uh, expected to do the washing up and all the things that you're expected to do. And you really, your head is still dealing with half a million penguins and death. <laughs> you just, you're a bit of a basket case. And so quite often I'll just end up going back home and I'll, I definitely remember one occasion I just went back and I, would, I just sat on the couch at home for an entire day looking out the window just wondering what had happened and so yeah mentally it's uh it's an interesting thing to deal with and, and and with that jeff when you come back i mean you've got a lot of time to think about things in these wild places and then you come back and you might not have that processing time or but but, but when you do what do these places make you think about our world at the sort of bigger broader perspective i know that's a it's a big question but the, the profound... do you know i mean i i kind of I think we're we're in the fortunate minority in that it's almost the reverse where these wild places allow you to kind of have perspective on your own life. You know, you disappear for a month and you don't have the pressures that we all have in our daily lives, you know, in in our in our normal adult, you know, world and you go out and you and you 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 get a perspective on everything and then you come back and you find it a lot easier to deal with. So I I actually find it restorative rather than a, a a problem when I come back you know I, I sort of I feel like at least I think I come back a better person but my wife might say differently but the but I do but it does it does give you just a little bit more of a calm approach to to you know the problems which we all face which end up being incredibly minor when you when you look at them from a thousand miles away and your films have been seen by countless millions I dare say maybe even billions of people at this point and what what do you hope to achieve by by these films what what's what do you hope people take away and in the case of in the case of penguins in particular you know what what uh, what do you want someone to feel do experience during and after that film well personally I think that 
you have to hope that the audience feels some empathy with those penguins and you know understands the struggles that they've gone through so that when they you know people read in the news about you know overfishing or you know problems in the Ross Sea where the penguins are feeding is that they're already sensitive to what lives there and it's not just some disembodied bit of news but there may be you know they can relate to the fact oh that's where those penguins you know are living and if it's you know if there's a problem there then these penguins are going to have are going to be uh, less well off and so hopefully you know it all adds up bit by bit to, to making people more sensitive more aware for mm-hmm. me that if, if you can achieve that then you've achieved something and, and Jeff, you described it as a privilege, but do you see it as an obligation to get the word out as well? Do you know, I, 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 I've, I, I have always felt that. You know, I come from a family of conservationists, but more and more lately I, I kind of really believe um, or feel strongly that it's really important for us as, as wildlife filmmakers in the blue chip sphere is what we call this kind of pure natural history that we do um, to remind people that, you know, humans are not the centre of the world in a in most of the planet you know we we're so good as humans to put ourselves at the center of every picture and and in fact the there is so much going on in particularly in the natural world that has absolutely nothing to do with us and i think it's important really to kind of re-establish that balance occasionally to kind of tell stories that just have nothing to do with any human whatsoever and kind of represent the natural world and and that and to me that's the truest form of documentary that you could possibly hope for is just kind of re- reminding people that there are things happening out there that have absolutely nothing to do with us. Mm. Um, and, it's a good recalibration. And we have an effect on it. There are places, and you know, Kate Crozier is maybe one of the best examples. Is that 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 whole life cycle goes on regardless of any human influence at all, year in year out, without you know, for millennia. I think it's really important to kind of break people away from the drama of their daily lives and remind them that there's something else going on in the world that doesn't involve them. And, I, you know, that's that's my main drive these days. Mm-hmm. You must get kind of emotionally attached to, to your subject. I mean, something as adorable as a, as a penguin character named Steve, for example, you can't come away from that untouched. And, 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 and uh, it must sit with you for a long time. I think it, you know, I think you go through various stages of, of love and hate, particularly with the delis, you know, you kind of, you come out of that experience. Um, Same with you and Mark as well, probably, right? Exhausted. <laughs> and uh, it, if, you know, you have to be really honest about it. It's, it's kind of a heinous place to work. You know, it's great for the first couple of weeks. And then after that, it becomes pretty difficult until you've got the end in sight. But when you get to the end, um, and I think my, you know, the little bit of diary writing that I did, Mark's much better at diary writing than I am. But I remember writing, saying, you know, that the you, just the Herculean effort that these animals are going through in order to get through their breeding season is is really admirable, you know. And, and we we were knackered and fed up and ready to go simply because we didn't belong there. And these guys were, you know, these Adelis are nailing it you know and have been doing it for for a long time and that's that's something to be really in awe of yeah i agree because i think you come back you know when you come back and you know these making ofs come out and everyone goes oh isn't that great you must what a hard time you had and aren't you tough for doing all that stuff and then you know that's 
one tiny little blip in 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 time you know and and those penguins are doing that every you know minute of their lives for i don't know how many years and you you, you think well that's you know it's really not very much compared to what they've got to put up with it's yeah. so much tougher than we actually managed to put on screen as well i mean there was so often you'd see you know they're getting attacked by leopard seals in the la- latter part of their season <laughs> and you know these leopard seals are monsters they're eight foot long and you know they eat penguins for breakfast literally and they um you know they're taking chomps at these penguins and penguins are getting away with half a head you know missing and then they would sit on the beach you remember you mm. kind of there'd be a, an Adeli penguin sitting with half its head you know falling off and it'd sit on the beach and you'd walk past it for the best part of four or five days and then on the fifth day you'd walk past it and it would just get up and walk up the hill as if nothing had happened and you know that's exactly how tough they are that you know you've got to, it's, you've got to pay uh, you make it sound like, like that. tarantino would it would make a great film in this place you know <laughs> uh-huh. i think tarantino might have been a penguin scientist in his former life <laughs> right Guys, I, I got to say, thanks for letting us into to your corner of the wild. It's been uh, it's been really lovely catching up with you and hearing your stories, and, and um, I can't wait to hear what people think about this. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Great talking to you again. Jeff Wilson and Mark Smith are filmmakers behind countless nature documentaries, including the recent Disney nature film Penguins. They're also a part of the team behind the new Netflix series Our Planet. To see the clip of their amazing footage of that snow leopard chasing its prey down a steep mountainside, go to our website, kuow.org slash thewild. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. There's a ton of information on the website if you want to find out more. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle in partnership with my work at Chris Morgan Wildlife. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Brendan Sweeney is our managing producer. Our fact checker is April Craig. We had engineering help from Dave Brown. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening.